It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Previously on Truth and Justice. If Dr. Paneri is correct here, the state has a big problem. Or more to the point, I have a big problem with the state's theory. Several of the wounds were made with a smooth-edged, non-serrated knife. Most, in fact, but not all of them. Some were made with what appears to be a serrated knife. So, what's the theory here? Sandy came at Jim with two knives, one in each hand? And then what? Puts one of them in the bathtub and disappears the other one? What the report is saying here is that some of the wounds were made with a knife with a defect on the blade, like a chip or a bend section. The problem is, the knife in the bathtub had no such defect. One more question before I call Airman O'Malley and Airman Rodriguez. If you gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched, and your orders are always followed, then why would Santiago be in danger? Why would it be necessary to transfer him off the base? Santiago was a substandard Marine. He was being transferred. That's not what you said. You said he was being transferred because he was in grave danger. That's correct. You said he was in danger. I said grave danger. You said, is there any... I recall what I I said. I can have the court reporter read back to you. I know what I said. I don't have to have it read back to me like I'm... Why the two orders? Colonel? Sometimes men take matters into their own hands. No, sir. You made it clear just a moment ago that your men never take matters in their own hands. Your men follow orders or people die. So Santiago shouldn't have been in any danger at all, should he have, Colonel? You snotty little bastard. Your Honor, I'd like to ask for a recess. I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. If Lieutenant Kendrick gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched, then why did he have to be transferred? Colonel? Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut cuts. these guys loose! Your Honor, you had markers inside a bony transfer. Your Honor, you doctored the logbook. Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor. Consider yourself in contempt. Colonel Jessup, did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! The clip you just heard was an iconic scene from the 1992 blockbuster movie A Few Good Men. In this famous battle of wits, Tom Cruise, portraying military lawyer Daniel Caffey, traps Colonel Jessup, played by Jack Nicholson, into confessing that he gave the order that resulted in the death of a young Marine. This fictional courtroom had audiences from around the world on the edges of their seats. The trial scenes were exciting and dramatic. Hollywood has always taken liberties when it comes to courtroom procedures. Millions of people have been tuning in for decades to watch Perry Mason, Matt Locke, and the Law & Order team crack cases right before the eyes of the jurors. But this scene takes the cake. It's iconic. And it's a long way from reality. Real trials are slow and boring. Attorneys are not allowed to narrate or testify. Other than opening and closing arguments, bookends to weeks-long arguments, real lawyers are limited to just asking questions of witnesses, and only the questions that are allowed by the judge. If a defendant doesn't take the witness stand, and they very rarely do, there's no way for the jury to ever hear their side of the story. 
defense attorneys are handcuffed, trying to prove a negative by attacking the state's case. For the last two weeks, you've heard the facts, just the facts, about Jim Melgar's autopsy. There was a lot of medical jargon that I couldn't pronounce, but there was no spin. But that's just not the case once things go to trial. Trials are all about working within the rules to present the best narrative, or story, to a jury. Oftentimes, personalities and attitudes play a bigger factor than they really should. At the end of the day, it's all about the battle between the prosecution and the defense. Who can present the best case that resonates with the jury? Last week, we finally received the transcripts from Sandy's trial. This is where things really become more clear. It's where we figure out what the jury heard and how they reached their verdict. We begin that process today with Dr. Catherine Paneri's trial testimony. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dr. Paneri's testimony begins as most expert testimony does. She explains her background, education, and work experience. At the time of the trial, Catherine Paneri was working as the Director of Forensic Services in Montgomery County. She explains that just over a year before, she had left Harris County because the folks in Montgomery had made her a better offer. A jump from Assistant Deputy Chief M.E. to Director of Forensic Services. And for the record, it seems to me, based on her work on the autopsy, that she deserved the promotion. Jim's M.E. report was very thorough, especially considering how many injuries Paneri had to document. While there were a few things that she didn't do that I wish she had, I still have to say that it's one of the better reports that I've studied. Paneri completed her undergrad studies at Louisiana Tech University. After that, she moved on to the University of Texas, where she earned her medical degree. Next came a five-year pathology residency at the University of Tennessee Medical Center, followed by a one-year forensic pathology fellowship at the Dallas County ME's office. Now, Colleen Barnett didn't ask during direct examination, but I assume the doctor then moved on to Harris County, which is where she was working when Jim Melgar's body was brought in for his autopsy on Christmas Eve 2012. Dr. Paneri was a state's witness, so Prosecutor Colleen Barnett is conducting the direct examination. This is where we see the differences between a few good men and a real trial. On TV, everyone is fighting to get to the truth. Lady Justice stands guard outside the courthouse while justice is served inside. But this is the reality. Once a case gets to this point, a full-blown jury trial, truth goes out the window. And that goes for both sides, the defense and the prosecution. The prosecutors already believe the defendant is guilty based on the police investigation. Otherwise, as ADA Barnett put it, they would never try the case to begin with. The same isn't necessarily true of defense attorneys, though. Everyone is entitled to a defense even if they're guilty. In some cases, a defense attorney is boxed into representing a client that they actually believe is guilty. The O.J. Simpson case is a great example. Now, I'm not saying that I know for a fact that Johnny Cochran and company believe that O.J. was guilty, but let's consider for a moment that they did. They still had a job to do. Once the trial began, it was the Dream Team's job to convince the jury not to convict. No easy task in this instance. Imagine being the defense attorney that's faced with convincing a jury to ignore the victim's blood on the defendant's clothing, in their car, and in their residence. It's a spin game. All trials are. Their strategy was sleight of hand. Rather than focusing on the irrefutable evidence, they drew the jury's attention away from the bloody glove and onto the man who collected it. Now, for the record, I believe that Mark Furman is a horrible racist. Make no mistake about that. But even so, I'm amazed that Simpson's defense team was able to use that information to trump the actual physical evidence that was staring the jury right in the face. They didn't call them the dream team for nothing. 
Like I said, it's a spin game. In OJ's case, the prosecution had all of the facts on their side. But at the end of the day, the facts weren't enough. Now, I do want to be perfectly clear on this point. This was not the case with Sandy Melgar. I've spoken with Mac and Allison Seacrest, and I can assure you that they both 100% believe in Sandy's innocence. In fact, they still continue to represent her today throughout her appeals process. One of the first things that Mac ever said to me, and I hope he doesn't mind me quoting him here, was that this is the worst case of injustice that he has ever seen. On the defense side of the table, innocent or guilty, it doesn't really matter. Just like the prosecution, once a case goes to trial, their job is to convince the jury that they're on the right side of justice. A good defense attorney has to formulate the facts into a narrative that will resonate with the jury. You'd think facts are facts, but really that couldn't be further from the truth. As you'll see in Dr. Paneri's testimony, different pictures are painted during direct and cross-examinations. Barnett wants the jury to focus on the sections of the autopsy that implicate Sandy, and Seacrest's goal is the exact opposite. He's trying to use the report to plant doubt in the minds of the jurors. And so begins the adversarial battle that is the American criminal justice system. Things start off relatively slow during direct examination. This is the part where the prosecution has to establish the fact that Jim Melgar was indeed willfully and intentionally murdered. Barnett accomplishes this by having Dr. Paneri walk through the injuries that were noted in the autopsy report, complete with photos that were displayed for the jurors. The goal here is to present the facts, but to present them in a way that leaves the jurors with the thought that Sandy inflicted all of those wounds onto Jim. Now, I've explained the shortcomings of trial testimony as opposed to source documents, but there are also some advantages. In front of the jury, good witnesses will speak in plain language. The witness's job is to explain the findings of the report in a way that a layman can understand. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to spend this episode reading the entire transcript to you. We've already covered all the injuries in great detail over the last two weeks. Instead, today, we're going to talk about the moments at trial where either side was able to shape that evidence to woo the jury over to their side of the table. And the testimony begins with Barnett introducing 43 photos into evidence. These are the photos that were taken during the autopsy, at least the photos that she wanted the jury to see. She painstakingly has Paneri explain each photo and every wound captured in the photos for the jury. After pleasantries and the reciting Paneri's resume, Barnett kicks things off by asking the witness a very good question. Was this an easy case or a complicated case? Paneri's answer, this was a very complicated case. She goes on to explain why. I say that because there are a lot of injuries to document. The scene findings were a little bit odd, and just these types of cases take a lot of work. Mr. Melgar was found in a closet. There was a lot of blood in the closet, and his feet were loosely bound with a telephone cord, and there was a red rope loosely tied around his chest region. No argument for me. This certainly is a strange set of circumstances. Then she goes on to list Jim's height and weight, again 5'7", 125 pounds. Then Barnett begins presenting her and the jury with autopsy photos. She starts with a picture of Jim's face. Paneri explains that some of the wounds were made with sharp instruments, like a knife, and others with a blunt object, something without a blade. On page 161 of the autopsy, Barnett begins to shape her narrative. In order to prove her theory that Sandy attacked and killed Jim by herself, she needs to establish the fact that, number one, there was a single attacker, and number two, the wounds were all inflicted at the same time. From the transcript. Question. Are you able to tell that these wounds occurred around the same time? Answer. They all look to be about the same. There's no evidence of healing, so yes, I would consider that they all occurred around the same time. Note her answer here, because it comes back into play during cross-examination. Quote, I would consider that they all occurred around the same time. End quote. Barnett does not press for any more details. With 
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Direct examination continues with a wound-by-wound discussion. What I find most notable about this part of the testimony is the vast span of wound locations, especially the blunt force injuries. Jim was bruised on his chest, his face, the top of his shoulders, the back of his shoulders, the top and back of his head. The head and face trauma resulted in skull fractures, his arms, wrists, and hands, his thigh, his knees, his shins, the inside of his legs, the outside of his legs, the tops and bottoms of his feet, his ankles, his back, his buttocks, and the list goes on and on. My first thought when reading this was, my goodness, how could one person hit him from all directions on his body and also stab him 11 times in his torso, fracture the back of his skull and the front of his skull, and cut the top and back of his head, all, and I quote, around the same time. Paneri spends quite a bit of time trying to explain the injuries to Jim's face. Some of the wounds are clearly sharp force. Some are a combination of sharp force and blunt force, and some are clearly blunt force, caused by an object with no blade. Then she moves on to the two wounds on top of Jim's head, incised wounds 15 and 16. 16 is one of the strange-looking wounds that's forked at the end. In the following paragraph, she also adds incised wounds 17 and 18, which are the other two forked-ended wounds that are on the back of Jim's head. These wounds are also described as having blunt and sharp characteristics. And Paneri does a good job of explaining exactly what that means. First, she talks about what types of objects could cause such wounds. Quote, things that could account for that would be an instrument with both sharp and dull characteristics. It can be a sharp corner of an object that would cut the skin, but also scrape it or bruise it, which is definitely a consideration in this case. But something that's going to be able to cut the skin in addition to causing the blunt injuries. End quote. Later, she goes on to describe what a wound like this would look like. Quote, One way that we determine a sharp force injury from a blunt injury, because they can look similar sometimes, is the presence or absence of tissue bridging, meaning little strands that go in between the two sides of an injury. And this wound does have some of those here. End quote. So when you look at a wound that appears to be sharp force, cut with a knife, a closer look might reveal the tissue isn't completely severed. A knife blade would sever through all of the tissue from top to bottom of the cut, but the handle of that same knife might tear the skin, but it would leave some tissue strands connecting one side to the other. The same is true of, say, a closet shelf. Paneri points out that all these head wounds are very much different in appearance than all of the torso wounds. There's no tissue bridging on the chest or abdomen. They're all clean cuts. But then on page 168, Barnett displays dates exhibit 690, This one shows a true blunt force injury. This is the, quote, cluster of bruises behind Jim's right ear. Paneri describes the wound as a blunt injury made up of predominantly bruises with a scrape. Now, what Barnett doesn't want to happen here is for the jury to think that this injury came from a fist. The bruise is big. Some kind of large object hit Jim in the head so hard it fractured his skull. Whatever it was, it didn't leave any kind of cut behind, just a bruise. Actually, a cluster of bruises within a larger bruise. A punch this hard on the skull would most definitely leave the attacker with a badly bruised hand, if not broken bones. Since Sandy had no such injuries, and this wound is too large to have come from a knife handle, Barnett phrases her next question very carefully. And actually, it's a leading question, which is not allowed. Seacrest could have objected here, and it would have been sustained. Barnett asked, quote, You're not able to tell if he fell against something or something hit him. 
So she's clearly leading Panera here, cluing her into the response that she's looking for. It's more of a statement than a question. You're not able to tell? As opposed to the proper form of that question, can you tell if he fell against something or something hit him? Now, that's not to say that it would have changed her answer. Paneri does agree with Colleen's statement slash question. After this, Barnett leaves the topic behind, and the jury was left being made aware that this could be an injury caused by a fall. Next, Dr. Paneri describes the blunt force bruises to both of Jim's ears. Whatever hit him or whatever he fell into bruised both of his ears and the back of his head. In my opinion, it's becoming less and less likely that these injuries were the result of falling into anything. They're too spread out, literally on opposite sides of his head. In addition, she describes bruises on his right shoulder, a very large bruise on his right upper chest, his left shoulder, his left shoulder blade, the tricep area of both arms, and the back left side of his neck. Again, the bruises on Jim's upper body span 360 degrees, front, back, left, and right. It's hard to imagine a fall that could cause all of them. Listen to how Barnett catches herself when asking about the bruises to Jim's back. From the transcript, quote, Does this show us some type of either that he fell against something or something was somebody gave force to him or something gave force to him? Somebody, no, something, gave force to him. She won't even say the word punch or hit. She even shifts her question to make the object inanimate, a something rather than a somebody. And in response, Paneri answers yes. She agrees that he either fell against something to create this particular wound or, quote, something gave force to him, whatever that means. Moving down the body, Paneri testifies about all the injuries to Jim's hands and arms. Without going into detail, we've already done that, she basically confirms that these wounds are likely defensive in nature. From the transcript, quote, Typically when you see wounds on the pinky side of your hands and the forearms, that's usually because they're up in a defensive type posture. End quote. Dr. Paneri spends quite a bit of time on the large gash on Jim's right hand. It's located between his thumb and index finger. And this one is deep and ugly. It looks like he tried to grab the knife from his attacker's hand, catching the sharp edge of the blade, which proceeded to cut him all the way down to his tendons. Now, this is a pretty typical defensive wound to find in a stabbing. But what's more important, or will become more important when we analyze blood spatter, is how this wound would bleed. The hand is probably the most mobile part of your body during a struggle. Blocking, striking, pushing, etc. And this is what the doctor had to say about this particular cut on Jim's hand. Quote, It does look like there's a blood vessel that's been cut across. Barnett, which would cause a lot of bleeding. Paneri, yes. This is something that we're going to need to factor in when considering spatter patterns. Jim's right hand would have been bleeding profusely from this wound. Next, Dr. Paneri gets into the injuries to Jim's torso. These wounds were described in brutal detail over the last two weeks, so I'll spare you the repeated explanation. But her testimony about wound number 12, that's a 5-inch long superficial cut to the left side of his abdomen, is interesting. She describes it as having some irregularities, but Barnett doesn't ask her to expand on that. Also of interest is stab wound number 13. This is the one that punctured the liver not once, but twice. Remember in the ME report, it was described as having two paths. Paneri explains this from the witness stand. Basically, it appears that the knife was stabbed into Jim's abdomen. The tip of the blade made it through the liver, about two and three quarters of an inch into the body. Then it was pulled back, but not far enough to exit the body and then thrust back in, puncturing the liver a second time. Two thrusts, one hole. Barnett does not ask Paneri to elaborate on this, but I found it interesting. Let's consider how this would happen. The blade only goes in two and three quarters of an inch. The blade in the tub is six inches long. If that's the weapon that was used, and Paneri later indicates that she believes it could be, then why not a full six inches of penetration? While the same question can be posed of all the torso stab wounds, this one has some characteristics that might help answer that question. Why stop short of a full stab? Pull back an inch, and then plunge the knife back in, that same inch that you just pulled it back. Think of the muscle movements that would require if this was a choice by the attacker. 
Stab hard enough to puncture the skin, fat, muscle, and eventually the liver, which takes more force than you'd think. But stop yourself halfway up the blade. Then pull back, but be careful not to exit the skin. Then repeat the first step, thrusting it back forward, and then remove the blade. Sounds silly, right? Maybe even tricky. But now imagine that the victim has a hold of the attacker's wrist. The attacker is plunging the knife as hard as they can, but Jim is stopping them from getting full penetration. His own hand is between the attacker's wrist and his body. The knife can't go any deeper. Then starts the seesaw battle. The attacker is pushing in, and Jim is pushing out. Jim overpowers the attacker for a short second, pushing the blade back, but not out. Then the attacker puts some weight into it and overpowers Jim. The knife goes back in. Then either Jim wins this battle, or the attacker gives up on this stab and pulls the blade out to stab full force again. And why would any of that matter? Because a struggle like that would absolutely, no doubt, leave bruising on the attacker's wrists. And most definitely on the wrist of someone with lupus who bruises easily. As direct examination continued, Dr. Paneri goes on to describe the wounds on Jim's lower body. She makes special note of the abrasion to his left knee, stating that it could have been caused by the carpet, and she talks a lot about the bruises on his feet. And I found that part interesting. It has me wondering about those foot bruises. There are some on the bottom that could be from kicking, but there are also several bruises on the tops of his feet. Since the evidence seems to indicate that most of the attack occurred while Jim was seated, it's hard to reconcile these with kicking. I'm thinking that maybe they're actually from the attacker stepping on them during the assault. Just a thought. At this point, Barnett's about to wrap up the direct examination. Now, she knows that she has some challenges. She needs to take her seat with the jury believing that the knife in the tub was the one and only murder weapon. That's her primary concern, and it would be for any prosecutor in her position. The good news for Barnett is that Paneri is a state's witness, and she's the state. The doctor is employed by Harris County, and the testimony clearly shows that the two have met and discussed her testimony prior to trial. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. It's very typical, but it's also a fact. And now here's Barnett tying up the loose ends before defense attorney Max Seacrest takes a crack at Paneri. From the transcript. Question. And I asked you if this knife would be consistent with some of the wounds that you saw in your autopsy. And what did you, do you, do you have an answer for that? Answer. My answer is that this knife would be capable of producing the injuries that I see on Mr. Melgar. End quote. Paneri goes above and beyond here. Barnett only asked if some of the wounds on Jim's body could have been caused by the tub knife. But Dr. Paneri answers that the knife would be capable of producing the injuries, quote, that I see, end quote. Since she's seen all of them, I take that to mean, well, all of them. Question. In the report, you indicated that there was a possibility that the knife had some serrated edges to it. Do you recall that? Answer. I, I, I do recall that suggestion, yes. Question. And was an analysis done on the knife to determine if that was on this weapon, and she corrects herself, on the murder weapon, to determine whether or not the knife could exhibit signs of serration? Answer. I don't know if an examination was done on the knife. Now think about what the jury has heard at this point. The bathtub knife has been referred to as the murder weapon, There were no tests conducted to find out if the, quote, murder weapon could have caused the serrated injuries. And for Barnett, that's okay, because Dr. Paneri already testified that the knife, the so-called murder weapon, is capable of producing all of the wounds. Therefore, there was only one knife. Well played. Continuing to button up loose ends and to get out in front of the cross-examination, Barnett addresses the elephant in the room the cuts to Jim's head. Even though Paneri stated that the tub knife could cause all of the injuries, she has to know that anyone who was listening would have some doubts about these. Now, the doctor never described the ends of the wounds as forked on the stand, like she did in her report. But she did say that they were caused by a blunt object with a sharp edge, a.k.a. not the tub knife. And since she can't have a second weapon, Barnett gives Paneri some options. She points out the shelf in the closet above Jim's head, as well as a piece of molding right near his head. Barnett, can you tell me whether or not that looks like something that could cause some of the injuries to Mr. Melgar's head? 
Paneri. Yes. As Paneri continues on, she explains. There's blood on the closet shelf, and the transcript says she's indicating, but of course we can't see what she's indicating to. Presumably she's pointing at the white trim piece that the rod bracket is connected to. She explains that there's blood on both of these items, and they have blunt and sharp characteristics. Therefore, they could be the source of the fork-shaped, blunt-slash-sharp wounds on the back and top of Jim's head. This part of the testimony caused me to look a little closer at the crime scene photos. A few weeks ago, on a follow-up episode, we discussed the possibility of the closet shelf as being the culprit of these wounds. It does have a lot of blood on it, and the blood stains are directly above Jim's head. But remember, they're also located directly in front of the gun. After really putting a lot of thought into it, I think I may have some answers for us. First of all, these wounds were not caused by the closet shelf. I'm convinced of that for a few reasons. While the corner of the shelf or the shelf bracket could cause a wound that would have blunt and sharp characteristics, I don't see how it could leave a fork at one end. But that's just the beginning. The blood on the shelf, rod, and shirt sleeves, all in front of the gun, is transfer blood, not spatter. Meaning something touched them that already had blood on it like a hand, for example. Now, none of this is new. We've discussed this before. But the real problem that I'm seeing now is the height of the shelf. Jim had three nearly identical wounds on the back and top of his head. Three separate blows. The closet shelf is at waist level. It's too low for Jim to hit his head on it if he's standing, and it's too high for him to hit it if he's sitting. There's no scenario that I can imagine where he hits the shelf three times. Four if you count wound number 16, right next to 15 on the top of his head, but with no fork. He could hit the shelf once during a fall, but not four times. I just can't see it. This tells me that the shelf is not the source of the wounds, and therefore, I feel even stronger about my theory that Jim was in fact attempting to get to his gun. At one point, I thought these head wounds must have been inflicted by a second weapon. But really, now I'm not so sure. The reason is the white molding that I mentioned earlier. The photos of the closet have been posted on our website in previous episodes. But this week, I reposted a couple with some annotations on them. The bottom corners of the molding are cut into 45-degree angles, creating somewhat of a trapezoid shape. And they're also beveled, meaning that at the corners, the wood is cut into 45s on two different planes, basically creating a Y shape, or a fork, some might say. The bottom right corner of the molding is perfectly in line with Jim's head if his body was straightened out upright from the position that he was found in. He was seated on the floor with his back against the wall, and he's slumped to his left. And there are visible blood patterns on the wall where he slid from an upright position to his final resting position. And now I can see a scenario where he hits his head on the molding four times. Remember that Jim had a lot of blunt force trauma to his face. He was beat with a blunt object, maybe a fist or something similar, so much so that his eye sockets were broken and his nose and forehead were bruised. Each blow to his face would cause his head to snap back. And what's right behind his head? The trapezoidal corner of the molding. So that could explain the cuts to Jim's head, but it is a long way from explaining the giant bruises behind his ear and the skull fractures. Next, let's talk about the ankle bindings. As you know, Jim had a phone cord wrapped around his ankles when he was found. The cord was wrapped several times and tied, but it was loose. And I've stated previously, and after reading this transcript, I maintained my position, that the ankle bindings were absolutely applied before Jim died. In my opinion, the evidence is very clear. The cord has blood spatter on it. The spatter matches the spatter on the surrounding areas, Jim's ankles and feet. Once he's lying there deceased, there's just no explanation as to why high-velocity spatters would sprinkle that area of his body. The theory is that the binding was put on as a staging or a forensic countermeasure. We're talking about quite some time after the murder actually occurred. The spatter just doesn't add up. Also, and possibly more importantly, there are ligature marks on Jim's ankles. Indentations from the cord. Now, remember, the cords are loose when he's found. They're not pressing against his skin. But it's painfully obvious, at least to me, that at some point he was fighting against those bindings, when he was alive. In order to get some of your opinions on this, I'm going to do something that I don't normally do. 
As a rule, I don't post photos of victims, period. I think it's disrespectful. But I'm going to make an exception on this one case. I posted a photo of just this ankle. These ligature marks are important. You'll understand why once you hear what Dr. Paneri has to say about the bindings. Barnett asked Paneri if she has an opinion as to whether the bindings were applied before or after Jim died. Paneri's response, quote, It's my opinion that the cord was wrapped around his ankles after he sustained the injuries to his head and torso. End quote. When asked why, Paneri explains that based on the defensive wounds, Jim was clearly struggling with his attackers. And I'll read this part right from the transcript. Quote, If that cord had been around his ankles when he was sustaining these injuries and fighting off the assailant, then I would have expected there to be some bleeding or hemorrhage marks on the skin from the cord to show me that he was restrained as he was fighting off his assailant. And there wasn't any hemorrhage or marks other than just like an impression, an indentation from where his foot was laying on the telephone cord. End quote. Here's the problem. His foot wasn't laying on the cord. The marks that I was referring to, and I assume Dr. Paneri was referring to, are on Jim's right ankle. Under the cord, but the cord isn't touching the marks. It's loose. When he was found, the cord was hovering above the mark. His right leg is on top of his left. There's literally nothing on the scene that can account for pressing the bindings against his leg. Not one thing. She says that she didn't see any hemorrhaging, but she didn't take any tissue samples and look at them under a microscope, which is how you determine if there's hemorrhaging. Furthermore, now I'm not a doctor, but in the photos taken before the coat was even removed from Jim's body, I can clearly see, even with my untrained eye, that there is a purple ligature mark on his right ankle. Purple means bruising. Bruising means hemorrhaging. Hemorrhaging means that he was still alive when the bindings were applied and he was fighting against them. How do innocent people get convicted? This is how. Even if this was just an honest mistake, I believe it was in fact an error and it was devastating. The jurors heard the medical examiner, a doctor, explain in no uncertain terms that the bindings were applied after Jim was dead. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that no burglar would take the time to tie up a dead person. And this is the game, the trial. In real life, Colonel Jessup doesn't confess in open court because, damn it, you can't handle the truth. In real life, witnesses present a narrative. And the jurors are left holding the life of another person in their hands, armed only with what they're allowed to hear. To close things out, Barnett sets the stage for what will become her final arguments at the end of the trial. The demonstration of how Sandy lured Jim onto the chair in the bedroom for a massage and began the attack with a cut from the chest to neck from behind him. Barnett shows Paneri one of the autopsy photos where Jim's head is turned in such a way as to line up the chest cuts and the cut to the right side of his neck. Then she asks Paneri if these cuts are in line with each other. Paneri responds that they're in the same plane. No mention of the fact that there's not one, but two parallel cuts on the chest, nor the fact that none of these three wounds would incapacitate or even slow anyone down. Colleen Burnett ends her direct examination by having Dr. Paneri confirm that this was indeed a homicide. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Lawyering Gymnastics. A listener coined that phrase on the fan page last week, and I find it to be sadly very accurate. By the time Dr. Paneri's direct examination concluded, the impression that the jury was left with was very clearly not good for Sandy. The ankle bindings were applied after death. Jim Melgar was stabbed to death with a single weapon. Quote, that knife is capable of producing all the wounds I see on Mr. Melgar. End quote. But watch how quickly the tides turn under cross-examination. Max Seacrest is a no-bullshit kind of guy. I've spoken with him. He's no mixer of words. Pleasantries are brief and feel more like a box being checked than any actual interest in how your day's going. I like him. I like his style. When Max speaks, you listen. And you listen closely. His words are chosen carefully, spoken quickly, and he does not have time to repeat himself. He's got work to do. No bullshit. When Max steps up to the podium for Dr. Paneri's cross-examination, it takes him all of 20 seconds to shoot a hole right through the middle of the narrative engineered during direct. Let me read you the first few paragraphs of Cross. Mac begins, Dr. Paneri, nice seeing you again. How are you? Now, this is a pretty typical exchange at the beginning of any cross-examination. Cross can be brutal. The lawyer in front of the witness has one job to do, to undo whatever the opposing side did during direct. It's not a fun process, so attorneys will almost always try to butter up the witness before they unleash the beast. Paneri, I'm doing well. Nice to see you. Seacrest, do you remember meeting me back, I'll tell you, January the 7th of 2016? You were kind enough to speak with me and Billy Belk in your office? Paneri, I do recall. Yes, I do. Seacrest, and I appreciate again taking the time to walk us through all this. Let me just ask you from the get-go. Could you rule out the use of more than one weapon on this homicide? Dr. Paneri, no. Boom. There you have it. Multiple weapons. Or at least it seems so until Seacrest asks her why she feels that way. Paneri goes on to explain that even though the wounds of the torso are different sizes, that could be explained by the knife not going in as deeply. Then she contrasts those wounds to the incised wounds of the head. These were clearly made with a different object than the tub knife. But as I discussed earlier... I believe that the molding in the closet is the creator of those forked wounds. So we're right back to where we started. One knife and a piece of wood molding. Max not buying it. He gently reminds Dr. Paneri that her report indicates the use of a serrated knife. He asks her if she can rule out this second type of weapon. Paneri responds, quote, so it did seem like there were some extra marks or possible serrations associated with a couple of the wounds, possibly inside wound number 12 on the lateral side, end quote. And then here comes the butt. And then we had an anthropology consultation, which examined the cut marks on the cartilage, which they thought it was mostly a smooth, non-serrated weapon with maybe some use defects on the edge, which might cause the extra marks on the skin so it appears somewhat serrated. There's no classic serrated marks on the skin, though, end quote. So, not a serrated blade, but rather a blade with defects. Makes sense? She thought the wounds looked serrated. Then she asked for a consultation. The anthropologist reported back that the wounds aren't from a serrated knife. End of story. Mac moves on to ask Panaria if she can conclusively say that the wounds to the back of Jim's head were caused by the closet rod. She says she cannot and agrees that there could be other possibilities. But wait a minute. When I was reading this part of the transcript, I was yelling at PDF Mac. Go back, go back, you missed something. We missed a bit of sleight of hand during the serrated blade testimony. Maybe it was unintentional, but it was effective nonetheless. When asked about the possibility of a serrated blade, Paneri said that incise wound number 12 had serrated characteristics. But then she said the anthropology consultation revealed that closer examination of the cuts to the rib cartilage indicated that a knife with a use defect was used. But incise wound number 12 didn't puncture the cartilage. Not even close. The anthropologist never looked at 12. 
Remember, that was the long, five-inch cut to the left side of Jim's abdomen. It was just a flesh wound. What Paneri actually said was that there was a wound on the skin that looked like it came from a serrated knife. Also, and separately, the anthropologist looked at some different wounds that had punctured the cartilage and determined that those wounds were not made with a serrated knife, but rather a blade with use defects. But what the jury actually heard? She thought one of the wounds came from a serrated blade, but the anthropologist determined otherwise. Add to that Dr. Paneri's previous testimony that all of the wounds that she could see could have been made with the tub knife, and the fact that she had already said that the knife was never analyzed to determine if it actually had matching use defects, and suddenly the facts of the autopsy in the anthropology report are lost. As I said before, trials aren't necessarily about facts or truth. It's all about who tells the best story. And this was a win for Barnett's team, for sure. And to be clear, I don't fault Matt Seacrest for this. He was working on the fly and had somewhere that he was going with his questions. That'll come into play later. He was reacting in real time to what was being said on the stand. I, on the other hand, had the advantage of spending hours and hours reading this testimony after the fact and comparing it to the ME photos, the autopsy report, the anthropology report, and previous testimony. Monday morning quarterbacking, if you will. The serrated blade argument seems to be out of play at this point. So Matt goes after the large bruise or bruises behind Jim's right ear, the cluster that caused the skull fracture and brain hemorrhaging. He knows that this wound could not have come from either the knife or the molding in the closet. It couldn't even have come from the wall. Drywall is most definitely softer than bone, and there are no dents in the wall behind Jim's head. Seacrest wants to get Paneri to admit on the record, in front of the jury, that this wound, along with bruising to the ears, were caused by blows, and better yet, from a fist. Unfortunately, Seacrest wasn't able to get what he was aiming for out of Paneri. At best, she confused the situation. At worst, she convinced the jury that these wounds came from a fall and not from a blow. From the transcript. And could it have happened when he fell? That's a possibility. Is it more likely that it happened because he was struck? So that can be difficult to determine. When you have a skull fracture and injuries to the head, we're always trying to determine if it's from a fall or a blow meaning a direct impact to that area. And sometimes you can tell if there's a fall pattern. He has a little bit of a fall pattern. Actually, he, he does have a fall pattern of his brain, such that he has this fracture on the back of his head, indicating. And what happens is you get that impact, and that causes the brain to kind of move forward and strike the skull on the opposite side. So you get, it's called coup counter coup, meaning coup for blow. So you have the impact here. The brain moves forward and impacts the exact opposite area. So typically what you do see in a fall pattern. And he did have some bleeding of the brain in the opposite direction, as well as the side of the fracture. Question. So what's your verdict? What do you think? Still go either way? Answer. Given the hemorrhage and the over the frontal part of the brain makes me think more of a fall pattern, but he also has trauma to the front part of his head. So I don't want to overstep my bounds and say definite because he does have the trauma to the front part of his face as well. Did you get that? He kind of has a fall pattern. Wait, no, he does have a fall pattern. There is hemorrhaging to both the front and back of his brain and fractures to the front and back of the skull. That could be from a fall. But there is trauma to the face, so maybe cause the fractures to the face. When I read her response there, I'm picturing in my mind a shoulder shrugging emoji. Mac is asking the right questions, but Paneri isn't giving him what he's looking for. He needs for the jury to hear some conclusive opinions that retell the narrative established during direct. And she's just not going to do it. When Barnett was questioning her, she was clear and direct. Did this knife cause all these wounds? Yes, it did. But with Seacrest, she repeatedly punts. That's a possibility. I can't say for sure. Maybe. And worse yet, maybe, but... In other words, she's not helping. Finally, on page 201, Max starts to get some traction. He does a good job of setting Paneri up so that she can't back away from her own testimony. He gets her to state that there were several blunt force injuries that did come from blows, not from falls. Then he asks if any of these wounds were made with fists. And we actually get a clear answer. 
but it doesn't last long. Seacrest. Was it consistent? He'd been maybe hit with fists. Panary. Some of them, yes. And which specific blunt trauma injuries do you see consistent with him actually being hit with a fist? Panary. Well, I can't tell exactly a fist, but there are some on the arms, some bruises on the arms that could be from impact with someone else's hand or other body part. As far as a direct blow with a fist, he had a bruise on his nose, which... Mac jumps in here. He seems to have her cornered. Question. That's consistent with being caused by what? And here comes the punt. Which, to be honest, is understandable. She really can't know with any certainty if a fist caused these wounds. Panary. Well, it just indicates there's some blunt... There is some impact to that area. Whether it was with a fist or something else, I can't say. So, that was a bit of a backfire. As I said, Dr. Panary was definitely within bounds to not commit to the fists. Still, though, the starting point, some wounds were consistent with being hit with a fist, was a lot better place to be in than where we ended. Whether it was with a fist or something else, I cannot say. Matt quickly recovers and gets straight answers from Panary in the next exchange. He clarifies his point by asking her to rule out the tub knife as the cause of these injuries. She confirms. The blunt force wounds were caused by blows and not from a fall, and the blows did not come from the knife. And if the jury was really listening, she did say that the wounds on Jim's arms and face could have been caused by either a fist or another body part. Now, it's not where Secrets was going with this line of questioning, but that's a bit of a win in my book. You can't hit somebody's body with parts of your body, causing bruises on them without bruising yourself in the process. Sandy has no such bruises. But, of course, Panary can't testify to that since she didn't examine Sandy. On page 204 of the transcript, Mac really begins to shape his narrative for the jurors. Barnett desperately needs the jury to believe that there was only one attacker. Secret smells this weakness in the state's case, and he pounces. First, he asks the doctor how many wounds Jim sustained. 31 sharp force and over 20 blunt force wounds. He asks her if this attack was particularly violent. She agrees. He asks if Jim was fighting back. Quote, yes, it does appear that he has defensive wounds which are consistent with fighting back. End quote. And he continues by asking how long it would take for one person to sustain this many injuries. From Panary, quote, it's going to take some time. It's not an immediate, he doesn't have any immediately incapacitating injuries. So there's no one injury that I can say, yes, after he sustained that, he died immediately. So he has a lot of injuries, a lot of significant injuries, but they're all spread out on his body. And to sustain this number of injuries in all these areas would take some time. Seacrest. Can you rule out more than one murderer? Panary. No. I can only tell you what happened to him, not who did it. That's not great, but it's not bad either. She can't rule out multiple attackers. But of course she made sure to add to the statement, which ended up clouding the issue. I can't tell you who did it. Now that's true, but not the point. Medically speaking, Jim had over 50 wounds spread out throughout his body. He wasn't incapacitated and he was fighting back. The attack would take some time, as she put it. In my opinion, she shouldn't be able to rule out the possibility of multiple attackers, period. Which is what she said, but then turned it into, I can't tell you who did it. Dr. Paneri goes on to confirm that the attacker or attackers would have been in close quarters with Jim during the prolonged assault. She also agrees with Mac that the killer or killers would have a lot of blood on them. Then Seacrest moves on to the ankle bindings. He points out the indentation on Jim's right leg left by the phone cord. I was excited when he got to this part, and then disappointed. Mac doesn't go where I thought he was going with this line of questioning. He's not asking about the possibility of the bindings being applied during the attack, when Jim was alive. Instead, he's suggesting that this mark could have been made from his attacker or attackers moving his body. And of course, this approach makes sense. Panary had already established during direct that, in her opinion, the cord was implemented after Jim had died. Pressing her any further on the topic had the very real potential for a backfire. But damn, I really would have loved to have seen another expert take the stand to give their opinion on the ligature marks. Unfortunately, that didn't happen, so we're left with only Panary's opinion on the matter. 
Oh, and by the way, she does not agree that Jim's body was moved. As the questioning continues, it becomes clear that the moving of the body theory was a setup. Remember that Barnett's theory is that the attack began in the bedroom, not the closet. Matt got Paneri to state that Jim wasn't moved, which seemed obvious to me, but then he follows by asking, quote, Is it your view that in all probability he was killed in the closet? End quote. Paneri's answer, yes. Then Paneri inadvertently punches a hole into the next slashed in the bedroom theory when Seacrest asks why she believes that Jim was killed in the closet. Her answer, quote, The amount of blood and blood spray, blood spatter that's in the closet and the lack of it elsewhere, end quote. Now, it's not a big win, but Seacrest scored some points with that one. An expert on the stand said there was no blood spatter anywhere outside of the closet. Paneri next confirms that the .06 blood alcohol is consistent with Jim having two or three drinks over a two-hour period, and then Mac goes in for the kill, so to speak. Everything leading up to this was setting the stage for this moment. He asked her to restate the number of injuries, over 50, then restate that Jim was, quote, fighting back hard. She agrees. Then he asked the big question, quote, would you expect some injury to the assailant just based on the sheer number of times that the assailant has now come into contact with the body of the deceased, end quote. And she punts again, quote, I'm not sure I can answer that. It would depend on the assailant. What the hell does that mean? Which is pretty much what Mac asked her, just not quite as colorfully as I just did. And in response to that question, Paneri doesn't really have an answer. I'm sure all of you are aware that being big and strong or small and weak does not change the fact that if your body comes into contact with another body, you're going to get injured, or at least bruised. Here's Paneri trying to explain her non-answer. Quote, Well, someone with more force would potentially not be able to, or Mr. Melgar wouldn't have, might not be able to inflict injury upon, or if he was trying not to inflict injury upon them, but I don't know, that's a hard one to answer. End quote. What's a hard one to answer? The question that was asked was, quote, what do you mean by that? It's hard to explain her own statement. I mean, don't get me wrong. I agree with her. I couldn't explain that answer either. But you'd think she had some sort of logic or reasoning behind the statement, other than just not conceding anything that might hurt the prosecution's case. Max stays honor. What about the bruising to his feet? Could he have kicked the attacker or been kicked? She says it's a possibility, but she can't say for sure. But then at the very end of Cross, we get an answer that might go a long way toward explaining some of the looming questions about the crime scene. Seacrest asks, Could he have been hit on the head at some point, but that didn't cause his death, and then later he was stabbed to death? Does that make sense? Answer, All injuries appear to be about the same age. And actually, the injuries on the head have a bit more of, they're a bit more dried, but they all appear to be, to have been afflicted at about the same time. About the same time is pretty broad, but luckily she offered up a more specific window as she continues. Quote, could they have spanned an hour? Yes. Mac moves in for the final question. You can't pin it down to closer to an hour. So that it's possible he could have been hit on the head and then eight minutes, ten minutes later he was stabbed. Possible? Paneri. Right. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. 
And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. <laughs>